Well, the Bible explains the good news by laying out the world's greatest problem, sin, and the world's greatest solution, Jesus. But some of you are already switching off. People hear the word sin and think, what problem? Aren't there bigger problems to solve? Aren't we all basically good and choose our own truths, our own values? And if there's no standard, there's no problem. You only live once, so do your best to make the most of it and try to be a decent person while you're you're here. And of course, there is no real need for a solution if there is no problem. So, what's on offer to the average person out there in Glasgow who doesn't really consider sin to be much of a problem? Sees the solution offered on the cross as simply symbolic of sentimental love that leads to this kind of hopeful possibility of an eternal existence where we hang out in the clouds with chubby angels playing harps. That's how so many people will see the gospel. Even in churches, from songs to preaching and the sharing of communion, we are seeing less and less gospel clarity. The knock-on effect is, of course, less enthusiasm for Christians to really celebrate and share the good news. The church has lost its appeal, not because we're not doing what the world's doing, but because we have lost the gospel, the true Jesus. If we dilute the problem, sin, we dilute the solution, Jesus, and we lose the heart of our faith. In the interaction we're about to read, Jesus is going back and forth with the Jews, both religious elites and everyday people who had just gathered for the party at the Feast of Tabernacles. The scene, well, he's still in the temple grounds after another Exodus-themed claim on the final day of the feast saying, I am the light of the world. And so follow me, like Moses and the people followed the cloud and fire of glory in the wilderness. Behind Jesus, as he spoke, were the still smouldering, burnt-out candelabras that had lit up Jerusalem the night before so that it could be seen for miles around. They were to represent the glory of God, God's presence that was once with them. The aftermath of that party was tinged with sadness. A reminder of Ichabod, God's glory has departed. God's not present with them like he once was. In the morning after the religious festival to draw the biggest crowds and commemorate God's presence that once dwelt with them, they were likely faced with the reality of their spiritual hangover. Empty and needing filled. I wonder, do you feel empty and in need of being filled? Of being satisfied, truly satisfied. In verse 21, Jesus begins by laying out the world's greatest problem. 
A problem not just shared by these Jews, but by all the world. And he does so in the singular, which is interesting. You will die in your sin, not your sins. Why? Well, I think what he's driving at is that at the heart of every sin, of all sins, is unbelief. Think back to the garden, that wonderful first temple in all its holiness and its beauty. Adam and Eve were enjoying life in shalom, perfect peace, only made possible by life in his ways. They knew the glory of their image-bearing purpose and were ready to take up the call to fill the earth and subdue it, to bring about communities of life, to take the seeds of Eden, this first temple, and make worshipping communities all over the earth. But Satan sneaks in, slithers up. Adam remains silent and complicit while Eve engaged in conversation with the snake. With one simple question, he began to undermine the glory of their temple existence. Did God really say? All sin is sewed up in that question, in the soils of doubt. To not believe God and believe the lies about him and the life he has given us. Humanity is made to worship, not to be gods, but to worship God. But as Genesis 3.5 says, we wanted to be like God. So, unbelief is not only to deny God then, but it is to take up another form of worship. There's no neutral place here. You worship God or you worship something else. The fall doesn't really cut it, does it? Humanity didn't fall into sin. It actively rebelled and pursued satisfaction in the created rather than the creator. To trust our own ways and not God's. In Glasgow, you can have so many conversations and in every single one of them about life and faith, without realizing it, people will show where their huge premium is, what it's put on. The individual's right to define the shape of their own existence. Praise is heaped on the person who is true to themselves, whatever that self is, even when that self is actually harmful to self. We must stand firm by believing in the goodness of God, trusting him to mold us in every area of our lives. And here in chapter 8, Jesus is showing the crowd that to not believe his words, God the Son, they do not believe God the Father either. That's his whole point. In other words, to not believe the words of Jesus is false worship. Jesus, just as Adam and Eve were banished from the garden's presence for believing the Father of lies over the God of truth, no one can come to the Father's presence without believing Jesus. If they do not believe Jesus, 
They will be separated from his presence, God's presence, forever and ever. They will be banished forever. Now the response of the Jews in verse 22 is a stunning example of how the sin in us wants to react to truth. Truth about Jesus. Truth about who we really are. Truth that confronts all our false worship. It feels threatened. And it wants to lash out. Jews, they understood suicide. They believed suicide was so dark and uh, full of um, evil that it was an unforgivable sin. Now that's something we don't hold to here. But it's used like a weapon for them. It's an impulsive swipe. I don't think they actually thought it, but subconsciously, the sin at work in them immediately wants to repel against the truth and react with an accusation. How dare you say that about me? What about you? And that's why Jesus, in verse, when we get to verse 45, says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So, at the heart of our sin is not to believe Jesus. It's not to believe God. It's to trust in self. It's to trust in culture. It's to trust in our own self-governance, our self-sustenance. Instead of believing in God and trusting in Him and humbling ourselves and saying, I need you. The truth offends the false worship of unbelief. Ha! He must be a false prophet, for only they would make the, all these great claims and then enter into such a sin. Ironically, see if you can get your head around this one, they deny the most sinless act done to them that can actually free them from condemnation by claiming it to be a sin and condemn the true Messiah. The rest of chapter 8 goes on to show this diametric and eternal implication of unbelief rather than belief. Above or below. Go with Jesus or you cannot come. Of the world or not of the world. Kingdom of God or kingdom of the devil. God is father or the devil as father. Polar opposites. Belief or unbelief. And isn't it interesting that Jesus then says, even though they deny him as Messiah, that they will keep on looking for him. What on earth does he mean by that? But of course they are not looking for him, him. (laughs) They are looking for a Messiah. We chase cut-out messiahs. That's what we do. Some, like in this context, are religious messiahs. We want a saviour, a God, who will save us, but save us on our own terms. Others put their hope in self-rescue or the rescue of relationships. For others, it's the achievements and successes of life, fulfilling careers or man-made accolades. For some, it's seeking the good life, holidays and flat whites, 
instead of the sacrificial praise of serving God and others. But none of these created things, no matter how good these gifts might be, can save us from sin. In his commentary, pastor and theologian Don Carson puts it this way. They are chasing an ephemeral wisp, for they have rejected the only Messiah there is. He is the only Messiah. Let's not miss him and start chasing for salvation elsewhere. What are you believing for salvation? Is it Jesus, the eternal creator God, who came in the flesh to rescue you? Or have you put your hope for salvation in something he created? The sin of unbelief is the root of all sin. But it doesn't remain there as if it can be kind of compartmentalized as just one of many choices in your life. That's not the case. Belief or unbelief is the trajectory for all life. And the sin of unbelief mushrooms. In verse 24, Jesus no longer speaks of sin in the singular, but sins in the plural. Sin becomes sins, and the implication is that sins become sins, which become sins, which become sins. Sin, as Jesus says elsewhere, is like yeast in a batch of dough. When just a little bit gets in, it spreads and it spreads until all of it is filled with sin. That's what Jesus means by below. He doesn't mean hell. He means the world in which we live. And in John, the world is never really a neutral term. It's not just the earth, but this life so full of toxic and spreading sin. This false worship. That's what we see described after Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis 3, isn't it? The fall of Adam and Eve initiates this downward spiral of sin, I should say rebellion. It begins this spiral beginning with Cain's murder of Abel. The days of Noah, and then finally, the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapters 4 through 11 is just this big overview of how sin spreads. It gets in, and it just keeps spreading. And then even after Noah, where there's a refresh, let's start again, let's wipe it all out, let's... Let's wash away all the sin. Let's bring judgment upon the earth. Noah gets drunk. and passes out naked in his tent. Puts a curse on his sons. And then they turn into an absolute mess. And then that leads eventually to the Tower of Babel. When they're trying to build a tower up to the gods because they want to be like God. The Bible is clear. Sin has filled us all. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, indeed there is no one on the earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Psalm 143, no one living is righteous before you. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have cheapened sin as if it's some wee religious category. Oh, that's a wee sin. That's a wee sin, isn't it? 
sin is the problem of all the world. Let's not allow ourselves to be captured by the way in which the world wants to describe it, to cheapen it, to soften it, to make it sound as if we don't need saved. We need saved. Think of it. Just for a moment. Entertain the Bible's claims. Jesus' claims. While having a think about all the problems in your own life. Why do you think they're there? Consider all the things you wish you were and aren't and are. And, or you wish you were. Oh, that, that's tough to say. <laughs> think of all the things that you wish you were but aren't. And you wish you weren't and would like to be. All the problems you see in your work and your family. Think of all the social issues in our city. Addiction, abuse, violent crime, divorce rates. Think of all the disagreements and failings of our politics. All the geopolitical tensions of the world. Think of how people in churches fall out. Gets into the church too. Could it be that there is something so wrong with humanity that it has pervaded all areas of life? Jesus says, it is the sin of unbelief and all the sins that multiply from it that will cause you to die. You will die in your sin. Cheery message so far, isn't it? That's the clear consequence of Scripture. By running from God, from running from the source of true life, the implication is not only a life away from Him, but that a judgment is coming to make all things right. And if we are found to be part of the corruption, which instead of the solution, which surely we will, from what we've just read, we too must die. We must receive the judgment we deserve. We will die in our sins. And Jesus says there is much to be said about that to this crowd in verse 26. I am sure there is much to be said about the judgment I deserve. And if there is much to be said to these God-fearing Jews, then as we just heard from these verses of Scripture, there is much to be said of the judgment of all people, of us. The problem of sin has spread so much that it is in all of us, and for God to restore the world to its beauty, its holiness, its design, to answer the groans of creation, as Paul described it to the church in Rome, judgment must come. And it's not like we can just turn this off. We can't just announce, guys, I don't actually want to be a sinner anymore. Uh, so from tomorrow, I'm done with sin. I'm off it. This is my last night. Tomorrow, I'm going to be sinless. It's going to be great, guys. Just you wait and see. Now, Jesus says we can't free ourselves. Even though we desperately need to be set free, we are slaves to sin, verse 32. He's clear. And he even says it in verse 26 that actually this is just what I've been saying all the time. It's consistent with Scripture. It's consistent with Jesus' message. He is on message here. The popular uh, talk of the world is that Jesus was this really good man who would never have talked about sin like this. He seems to talk about sin and hell actually quite a lot. 
Verse 33, the Jews are incensed. Maybe you're incensed. At the suggestion that they need to be freed from sin. What? We're not slaves. Who do you think you are? Despite being subject to Rome, they saw themselves as sons of the kingdom and spiritually free. They had a sense of inherited privilege. Such a profound sense of privilege that they cannot recognize their own needs. What are you on about? We're Abraham's descendants. Our Jewish lineage, our genes, that's what keeps us safe. And besides, we keep to the law. You certainly shouldn't be telling us that we need to be set free, Jesus. They were like someone at the door of a club, incensed that someone would even suggest they can't get in. Do you not know who I am? But of course, true Israel was never about genes or outward signs. It wasn't about who your dad was. It wasn't even about circumcision or sacrifices. It was about God being your true father and having faith in your heart that, you would provi- that he would provide. He would provide the Messiah who would be cut off and sacrificed so that you might be set free from sin and be with him forever. Psalm 46, sacrifice, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus says, look, you think you represent the family of God, but your religiosity actually stinks. And it makes you more like a slave in the house of God than a child of Abraham. A child of Abraham belonged to the house, but a slave had no belonging. It could be sold at any moment. He could be sold. She could be sold at any moment. Discarded. Beware what makes you think you are safe. For us... In our culture, it's not the privilege of genealogy. It's the belief that you're inherently good. And to be a good person is about finding that true goodness from within, not from anywhere else, especially God. Expressing your true self and your true uh, truth is life. That's the pursuit. And so how dare you tell me what is true? But don't you see how that enslaves? Don't you recognize that your understanding of self is not self-made? It's made by everyone around you. Don't you recognize that it is your family, your circumstances, your friends, the, the words of this culture being preached at you day in and day out that is forming you? not really from within. It's not like you're compl- you can be separate, separated from what's around you. That is forming you, and you need to decide from what, from what do you want to be formed. Can't you see that as much as you might say it doesn't matter to you, you really care about what others think, 
And so your self-expression is really a creation displayed for the approval of others. And you don't know that you were made by a creator who knows you a lot better than yourself. Like the Jews in this crowd, and in every period of history, we have been fooled into thinking our beliefs lead to freedom when in fact they enslave us. They pull us away from our maker and they swap the worship of the creator for the worship of the created. It's basic Genesis 3. The truth is, we're all enslaved to sin. No one is righteous, no, not one. And we all desperately need set free from the slavery of sin. Jesus isn't messing about, is he? He's saying to them that they are slaves and not truly part of Abraham's family, but they are not only slaves, they are also sons of the devil, verses 41 and 44. It is his lies that you are governed by, and not Abraham's, and certainly not God's. Let me be clear, I'm not standing up here and saying, we as Christians are better than you. It's not what we're saying. We're saying we once were all in the same boat. All of us born into unbelief of sin, destined to die, enslaved to sin, and governed, governed by Satan's worldly whispers. Now that is the world's greatest problem. Hallelujah. Here comes the world's greatest solution. There is hope in the world, and he is here, stood, speaking of it now, as we read these verses. Hope in the form of flesh in the world. He says, where I go, you cannot come. But where is he going? And then he gives us a clue a little bit later on in verses 27 and 28. Let me just read those verses out. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. He has come from his Father, and he will return to his Father. And in this moment, he's saying to them, you cannot come. But then he shows them that they will see. What does he mean by that? First of all, we need to work out what he means when he says, I am he. He says, it's, it's really literally, it is I. I am who revealed himself to Abraham, father of Israel, who God promised he would restore life through. He is that, he is the I am who appeared to Abraham. But he is also, more specifically here, in the Greek, it is I, it is, it is I, and almost certainly it refers to Isaiah. 43, and this is what it says. 
Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's what, it, that's what it looked like. Created for his glory, formed and made. And that is all of us, image bearers, made for his glory. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, or it is I. Before me, no God was formed. Ah, run away from the false worship. All worshippers, run away from the false gods. Nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no saviour. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm it. It is I. I'm the saviour. There's none before me. There will be none after me. This is the one Messiah. The one that can save. The one that can rescue you from your sin. It is him. God in the flesh comes to rescue. He comes sinless and lives sinless. How? By doing what the Father calls him to do. He does nothing out with his father's will. He represents his father perfectly and what he does is he takes heaven to earth and he lives this righteous and holy life. And then in the same verse, what do we see? They will see when? When he is lifted up. And what does he mean by that? We've talked about this as we've gone through John. It means two things. He's lifted up on the cross. And in that moment, many will believe. Many will see the cross. They'll hear about the cross as the gospel is preached across the nations, like in here, and they will believe. And they will be saved. And they will enter into, their, into his Father's presence through Jesus because he dies in their place, dying for their sin so that they can be free forever. But there is another aspect to this. He is not only lifted up and glorified there on the cross, he is also going to be lifted up and glorified when he returns. And so if you have not believed when you heard about him at the cross, and you are stuck in unbelief and slave to sin, then you will still die in your sin, even though you will see him and see his glory. You will cower from it and you will say, I did not know you. In his mercy, he has come. In his love, he has come. And he has come for you and he wants to rescue you. And he says, all you need to do is believe. Stop believing in all the created stuff. Stop looking for your saviour there. I am the one saviour. None before, none after. Do you believe? Not your works. You don't have to be good. I have all the goodness you need. Come to me and be saved. And that is the truth that will set you free. Verse 32. You didn't realise it. Maybe you didn't realise it. But you have been enslaved to sin, and now you can be free. You can be free indeed. There is no freedom like it. 
Maybe you're already a Christian. If you're already someone who knows and loves Jesus, do not be fooled. Do not be fooled back into the world's whispers and lies. It can pull you away, convince you you need to do this and you need to do that, and then God's going to be happy with you. No, God's pleased with you. Simply believe because Jesus has done it all. Enjoy your freedom. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first half of this should feel really heavy. The second half should feel so free. The burden of your sin, the chains, they've been broken. They're gone. Jesus removes them from you. And they're gone forever as far as the east is from the west. Sin is gone. You're a saint. You're in Christ. You're known by Him and you're loved by Him. He came from heaven to earth because He adores you. He came to rescue you. He came as your Messiah. And He achieved it on the cross. All your sin washed away. Your freedom was bought with a price. Now enjoy it. Enjoy it. And your true freedom is, fr- is found in becoming sons and daughters of God. You once were spiritual orphans. You were slaves in the home. But now, now you are free. Now you are part of the family. Do you see how this leads to a person, a relationship? It's not chubby bunnies and harps, it's God. It's that Eden-like worship, walking with God, enjoying God, knowing God, adoring Him and trusting Him with all your life. There is no better place to be. Nothing you are made for like you are made for him. Friends of ours were fostering a child for a while. But after a lot of work and uh, months went by, they knew in their heart, this is our son. We're supposed to adopt him, take him home forever. When the papers finally came through and the court approved it, they sat him down, told him the news, and he wept. In that moment, he knew he belonged. In that moment, he knew who his mother and his father were. In that moment, he knew he was loved. You may, you were, lost in your sin. But now, you are found. And you are found by God himself. He made you in his image and was delighted to restore you through his son. How much more Should we be delighted to know that God the Father 
has brought us in for eternity, that he's brought us home, that one day we'll be with him face to face. Not as sinners, but hidden in Christ, holy and blameless. We were saved for our relationship with God. And as Galatians and Romans both tell us, we now get to cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, Daddy, we love you. We, wanna, we just want to be with you. We just want to please you. We just want to rest in you. That's the shalom of the forgiveness of sin, of the love of the Father. Once we were in unbelief, destined to die, enslaved to sin, and governed by Satan's worldly whispers. But now, for those who believe, you are destined for life, free from condemnation, and you're being led by Jesus, the light of the world. We follow him together, his disciples, children of God.